Hello and welcome to the ITN Business Extra podcast, COP28 Reflections. I'm Marianne O'Hotter. The 28th COP, or Conference of the Parties, has just finished in Dubai. It's an annual meeting where United Nations member states come together to assess what progress has been made on tackling climate change and to agree the next steps. Bigger and bigger each year, more than 100,000 people from more than 190 nations, governments, campaigners, lobbyists and business leaders, came to the United Arab Emirates for this year's two-week-long event. Over the years, many paper promises made at COPs haven't materialised into real action. Others have been globally powerful, holding nations to account and driving much-needed change. Decisions can be made only by consensus, and so, perhaps inevitably, that consensus is hard to reach. Some people think COPs are a talking shop, driven by powerful vested interests and not fit for purpose. Others think it's the best hope we've got for nations to work together to keep our planet livable. There were fears that unless there was clear agreement about the future of fossil fuels, this year's COP would be a failure. The words about fossil fuels were hotly debated. Phase out fossil fuels, phase down fossil fuels, or maybe don't mention them at all. Well, in the 13th hour, the wording of the final agreement was settled. For the first time ever, the world's governments have committed to, quote, transition away from fossil fuels, beginning this decade to achieve net zero carbon emissions by 2050, quote, in keeping with the science. It's a clear signal that this is the beginning of the end for fossil fuels. But are those carefully negotiated words urgent enough? There were also pledges at this year's COP into the newly established Loss and Damage Fund, developments on how to transform climate finance so all nations can transition to clean energy. There were commitments on food and agriculture, increasing renewables and improving energy efficiency. And at the time of recording, on Wednesday the 13th of December, there were discussions on carbon credits and carbon trading which are ongoing. So, how much do the words really matter? What do UK business leaders need to know about all this COP stuff? And what happens next? Joining me in the studio to discuss all this and more are Dr Nina Seeger, the Director of the Centre for Sustainable Finance at the Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership, and Mark Sommerfeld, Deputy Director of Policy at the Association for Renewable Energy and Clean Technology. Thank you both for joining me now and your time today. OK, so let's dive straight in and get some initial reflections on how did COP28 go? Well, I think it's been a COP of two weeks, right? I think if you look at the first week with the plethora of financial announcements, with the climate finance declaration, with the agreement of the loss and damage fund, and not only agreement of the fund, but actual pledges of money going into that fund, with the inclusion of food systems and agriculture in the nationally determined contributions, which are all of these plans that countries make to actually adhere to the Paris Agreement, that was quite a substantial first week. And then we came into the the second week with a lot of expectations around the fossil fuel phase-out language and the final language that we've settled on, which is this uh, language around transitioning out of uh, the fossil fuels in the energy systems. It's a compromise. Yes, it's further that we have ever been. Fossil fuels are mentioned for the first time, but it's not far enough, given what the IPCC had said this year, given the climate shocks we're seeing happening in the world today. So we do need 
a lot more ambition and business and finance need an ambitious policy framework to be able to transition. So I think it's, um, it is progress. It's recognizable progress and there are lots of good things in it, but we need to do a lot more. Mark, there were fears a couple of days ago that the the stalemate around the language of phasing out, phasing down, there was a fear that everyone would walk away from Dubai having agreed nothing, wasn't there? Um, absolutely there was. And 24 hours ago, yesterday evening, when we were looking at the news, um, there was a certain amount of momentum that had definitely been lost. And then that was lost yesterday when that initial text came out and it just mentioned taking actions that could include, which is almost a kind of substandard invitation to nations to do something about this. What we've ended up with is a bit better, but it's not quite far enough. It's a calls on parties to contribute, um, which is you know, still a, an invitation almost to do something. It is not a definitely you must do this. Uh, but it is really positive that this transitioning away from fossil fuels is mentioned. That is the first time we've had it. The importance of that being that that now relates to oil and gas as well. Um, previously, we've only had references to coal. Um, so this is really a moving on of that discussion and something that we can work with and take forward. But there's a long way to go. Interesting. Now, I have to say, I would have thought that you were, you would both be slightly more buoyant about what, what came out. This idea, so we're not dealing with phasing out, we're not dealing with phasing down, we're transitioning away, but with a commitment that that's going to begin this decade, um, this additional language in a just, orderly and equitable manner, so as to achieve net zero by 2050 in keeping with the science. That's that little bit at the end, which I felt resonated very much with um, the president of COP28, Sultan al-Jabba's defence of his statement earlier at COP, saying, I follow the science, that's my, that's my North Star. OK, well, let's unpack this a little bit more. Day one, the loss and damage fund was agreed. Wealthy states and major polluters will put millions of dollars towards a fund that will help the poorest states who are most vulnerable to the harms of climate change. So far, initial pledges have topped... 700 million US dollars. Nina, can you explain a little bit more about what is the loss and damage fund? How big a significance this 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 agreement and this this beginning of the pledging is and how it fits into previous commitments for this this goal of 100 billion dollars of of climate um commitments per year. So if I talk you a little bit through this, right? If we think about uh, climate, there are three distinct terms. There's mitigation, which is effectively bringing down our use of fossil fuels across uh, the spectra within the energy system, within steel, within our hard to abate sectors, everything, everywhere. There is adaptation, knowing that we will at least hit one and a half degrees, hoping to stand to stay there. Therefore, we already need to start thinking about resilience and adaptation in our community. So, you know, if you think about this stuff is we know that we're locked in into a particular amount of warming. We know that we're locked in into a particular amount of impacts. If you look at the UK coastline, for example, under one and a half degrees, we're looking at half a meter sea rise. We have some areas of really low lying coastline, which already today means that we need to start thinking about how to adapt to that. And then there is loss and damage. And effectively, what loss and damage means are the losses and damages that are already occurred, which we really do need to start compensating 
uh, vulnerable nations for and start building their resilience. This is why it has been a really long discussion across conferences of parties over multiple years. This is why, for example, COP27 in Sharm el-Sheikh last year was seen as a breakthrough agreement on loss and damage because that text has finally made it into the negotiating text. And we had opened up the framework for negotiation because, remember, this has been a quite a contentious issue where developed markets are very worried about any sort of liability language because that potentially opens opens them up to legal avenues. So kind of finding a way around it was quite important. So the idea that a low-lying island in the South Pacific would say to Germany, this is your fault, you're legally liable for what's happening to our people and our land. Your historic emissions, right? Right would have caused a particular level of warming that we are now working with. So the compromise around loss and damage was to avoid any sort of legal uh, consequences for developed market, but also to open up a way for richer countries to finance the damages that are already occurring in the most vulnerable states. And that's where the framework got agreed at this COP and the location of where the fund is going to sit is going to sit at the World Bank for the first four years and then it'll be reassessed. But also the fact that we have seen a number of financial commitments uh, coming through. So UAE and Germany led with 100 million each and then there were many, many other commitments that starting to pull in. Now, there is a difference between loss and damage and the 100 billion number. So the 100 billion number is the amount of finance that was agreed needs to be delivered per year towards developing markets. Now, um, it's a it, it's a slightly, again, slightly complicated situation, as most uh, UNFCCC things are, most COPs are, in the sense that we really usually get reporting on how much money got delivered about two years after it got delivered. So this year, we know that the, that number wasn't hit in 2021. But what OECD said is, according to unverified data, we finally hit $100 billion in 2022. Knowing all of that, we know that we fundamentally need somewhere between 3 to $6 trillion a year wow. uh, for the world to transition. So kind of this, again, hitting the $100 billion is... Great, because it shows that developed countries have finally actually started to deliver on their promises. And so these early agreement, the early agreement on loss and damage, as well as the 100 billion number, should have made for easier negotiations because less of a contention on the table. Mark, what are your thoughts on the, the loss and damage fund? Is I mean, is it an absolute success? Is it a step in the right direction? It's moved things on substantially, and it is really positive, as Nina has said, that is that we've now finally seen it within the text and it's being committed to. Uh, that 100 billion figure uh, has been an important marker, an important totem, especially for the developing nations, who quite rightly have come to the talks and said, you've promised us stuff that you've not delivered. How can we trust you on other aspects of these discussions? How can we trust you when you say you're going to do X and Y, um, and, you, uh, um, and you haven't delivered on previous promises from previous COPs? Um, so seeing this loss and damage fund um, established, seeing that 100 billion 
figure, as Nina described, which is slightly separate, but is, is, um, is crucial, actually delivered, mean that the parties can come together and have some confidence in each other and in what they are saying. You shouldn't overplay that in that there is still a lot of misgivings between the different parties, but it has certainly helped move the discussion on and it remains crucial that developed countries do deliver on the commitments that they um, that they make, whether it be the loss and damage fund or, or any of the other commitments that have been made in the last two weeks. The politics of this is really where these commitments lie and how they're policed. There are certain things that we really, really need as a world as a whole, and that is phasing out of fossil fuels. That is really speedy transition. Then you think of it of where is where do you need to put finance to its best use. And a lot of the time, actually, putting finance to its best use is in the emerging and developing markets. So, you know, you also have to think of it as, yes, there is a particular temperature check in having a COP each year, which effectively tells you where you are and agrees certain language and agrees to continue pushing forward. But for every other day of the year, we also need to think about kind of uh, creating enabling policy frameworks to allow private finance to flow into these countries. Because if you think about the 100 billion number, it's predominantly public finance. There's a very small amount there that's private finance. And while we know that there is enough money in the system as a whole in order to transition to a sustainable economy, we also know that we can't transition with just the public money. So we need to start figuring out ways to use public money as an enabler. So to use, for example, if I give you an example, a lot of private finance struggles with investing in uh, particular developing countries which with a particularly low credit rating. So if you think of a way of creating financial innovation that provides uh, insurance for political risk, provides insurance for country risk. If you use multilateral development banks as a way to enable that flow of money where they take some of the risk off, then you are switching from using a small amount of public money where the politicians, as you very rightly said, who are responsible to their constituencies for using it in a particular way and actually opening up a much bigger market enabling that market to take account of opportunities across the entire world. It's, it's, it's striking, isn't it? Because it's risky, it's unfamiliar, it, it requires a, a, a complete overhaul in the way that finance, way business is done as, as currently. Can I be a little bit cheeky? Yeah. I agree with you that it's risky and I agree with you 100% that it's unfamiliar. But also there is a particular thing that has to do with the perception of risk. So a lot of the times when you look at the country rating of a particular emerging country, what it has is it has parts around policy uncertainty. But if I bring it closer to home and if the UK was judged along the same yardstick about our policy uncertainty and the changes that we see in the UK policy – would our credit rating be uh, quite as volatile as some of those emerging markets ratings? I'm not entirely certain. So some of that risk is entirely correctly priced. But some of that risk is a perception of unknown, is a perception of particular volatility that's not always warranted. There's a system-wide change that needs to happen to look at the way the international financial architecture is set up to enable that private finance to 
go into those places. Because, for example, certain private uh, financial institutions are not allowed to invest in uh, projects with a particular rating. So they have particular rating restrictions. Uh, pension funds have these issues, right? And however, if you think about long-term investment where pension funds should be invested for the long term because that is effectively their job. If you think about those long-term investments, they have to be aligned to sustainability because in 2050, if we're not driving a sustainable economy, we're going to be in a world of trouble. Mm -hmm. So from that perspective, finding ways to allow private finance to flow, I think is an absolutely huge and important thing. And there are solutions out there. And some of the stuff was discussed at COP this year, but there are also a lot of other potential solutions where you could change the way multilaterals operate, you could, but also private finance can do some of this stuff on its own as well. I'll just add to that is that this is an area that is evolving and changing. And in some ways, we are starting to see that de-risking. It's happening slowly. But one of the big outcomes and really positive outcomes at COP was a commitment by 130 countries to triple the amount of renewables deployed mm. um, in, in the world. Five years ago, I don't think we would have seen that kind of commitment. And part of the reason that's been possible is because one, cost of renewables has come down an awful lot. But two, uh, it's effectively we're seeing the investments in renewables being de-risked and people understanding how those business models can work. So as Nina was saying, you know, this de-risking of international finance, we are seeing it in some aspects of these discussions already. And that creates a really positive basis for taking things forward. But an awful lot more needs to happen, especially on other areas of um, sustainability um, and biodiversity and, and so forth. There was a commitment as well in the in this general stop take this this document that came out at the the kind of the thirteenth hour of COP twenty eight about um, about uh, doubling energy efficiency as well by twenty thirty. How significant is that? How reliant is it on clean technologies that we don't yet have? There are a range of technologies that will deliver. Um, energy efficiency. And in its most basic, we have an awful lot of it already. So if we think about the UK, uh, when we talk about energy efficiency, we're often talking about our buildings and our, and, our, and our infrastructure. The UK has some of the poorest insulated buildings in, in Europe. Um, and so efforts to uh, insulate, double glaze, um, improve the energy efficiency of, of our buildings all fits within that energy efficiency um, target. But then there are also an awful lot of uh, developments in technologies that we also need to see happening and come forward. And that is the natural uh, way of technologies developing, uh, that they do become more efficient, that the, how they operate become uh, um, more efficient as they evolve um, and as we deploy them further. And we will expect to see that right across all generation technologies, all clean technologies. Um, we're already seeing... Well, over the last five, six years, we've seen incredible improvements in solar efficiencies, along with their costs coming down. We're seeing developments of many different forms of long-duration energy storage and the efficiencies they bring to our energy system and how we manage our, um, our, our energy flows. So it's a broad question of how much of this depends on future technologies. Well, some of it does, but it all is based on technology we already have today that we're already delivering, um, and we have confidence in how that will evolve and, and be delivered, and that is the natural scheme of how uh, technologies uh, um, improve over time. When we're looking at sort of 
I don't know, for example, insulating homes, um, making water systems more resilient to flood and drought. Uh, we're talking about cooling in, in urban areas. How much is it, with a UK perspective, how much should the focus be, get your own house in order, let's sort out lots of things here before uh, expanding to a, a global perspective? How much should it be hyper-local within communities or regions? Or is it kind of we need to be doing it all at once with the same urgency and speed? Uh, for me, it's part and parcel of the same thing. So one, what is agreed at COP absolutely has to be turned into domestic policy that we see in the UK. And the other flip of that is to say that if we're not doing these things in the UK, then we're going to have an awful lot of trouble turning up to the next future COPs um, and trying to get other countries to agree with us that we need to be phasing out fossil fuels and, and, and doing things. So these statements at the international level are only as good as what we do at the, interna at the national and regional level um, within our governments. And this year, as I think Nina alluded to, the UK has had a troubling year when it comes to energy policy. Um, there has been certain statements that have been made by government, which while not completely uh, um, uh, changing our direction of travel on decarbonisation, have certainly weakened the message that we are putting out there. Um, and that is sending confusing signals to investors in the UK. It's sending confusing signals uh, to uh, domestic households in the UK about what they should be doing to decarbonise. But it's also, all of that also gets reported on the international press and it's sending confusing signals out to our international counterparts when we come to these discussions. And when we argue for a statement that says we should be phasing down fossil fuels, and they can easily turn around and us to and say, yes, but you're also supporting new oil and gas exploration in the North Sea. So there is an obvious... How, how's your new coal, how's your new coal mine <laughs> exactly, going? Yeah. Exactly. So, you know, there is an obvious uh, contradiction that needs to be addressed. And we need to be taking pride in the actions we're doing in the UK. These commitments that we're making at the international level have to be reflective in what national policy is being done. Otherwise, we won't have a leg to stand on in future COPs. I think historically, I mean, as very rightly Mark's point, pointing out, historically UK has been a leader in this space and it would be absolutely fantastic if we continued to be a leader in that space. And that includes very progressive international policy, but it also includes very progressive national policy. But a lot of this stuff also has to do with demand reduction measures. So actually, we can go quite a long way to where we need to be by looking at sorting out inefficiency. So if we think just even about food waste, right, bringing down food waste goes some way towards our uh, reductions uh, that we need to make. Thinking through insulation, Absolutely. We stop heating the outside. Wouldn't that be great? Mm. Again, goes having more efficient way. cooling for, for warm periods as well. Well, exactly. And that also addresses the cost of living crisis, right? If you don't have to heat the outside, your energy bills are going to be lower. And I think this is, I mean, this is the point that is not being made enough. We are ultimately within the entire sustainability conversation building a much better way of life and much more sustainable, a much healthier way of life for the world as a whole. So you do need to look at it with an opportunity-based mindset as well. That this is a cleaner, healthier, happier future. But then we go back to Sultan al-Jabba, the COP president. He, he kind of had that very testy exchange with uh, Mary Robinson quite early on in COP28, talking about, you know, 
you know, if we if we try to move too quickly in a, a non-orderly way to f- removing fossil fuels, we're all going to go back to living in caves. And that's, um, I mean, it's something that comes out, isn't it? That actually, what vision are we selling when we're talking about sustainability? Are we talking about something where we have to reduce demand, live in a very different way, never go on holiday again, never eat an avocado again, to kind of make it very, you know, specific? Or is it something that actually enables a, a better, brighter, more uh, abundant future, Mark? I think if you look at the various scenarios for delivering net zero, and there's many out there, but being a, a UN discussion, we're focused on what the IPCC has previously said. They've set out, quite rightly, a number of different scenarios for how you meet this idea of net zero. What does that really mean? What kind of technologies do we need? What kind of behavioural change um, will we need? And the important message there is that this is a transition. It isn't a turn off everything today and change your behaviours. It recognises that you do this over a number of years, but that that window for doing this is getting narrower and narrower. So the more we do now and the more we put in place now, the more sensible and orderly that transition will be um, and and the better it will be um, for everyone. Now, some of that we will as individuals have to recognise, it will require some behaviour change. Now, that doesn't mean as going as far as saying stop flying on holiday or, 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 or radically changing your diet, but it does mean we have to be more aware of what our individual carbon footprints are and we have to be aware of what are the solutions to how we might decarbonise that, whether that be sustainable aviation fuels or electrification of our transport systems um, or encouraging people to eat more locally as a general principle but you know that doesn't have to be everything um so if you think about scenario setting it is a transition to how you deliver that it isn't a change immediately but we do have to be working towards a goal that says this is how we're going to decarbonize here are the solutions to how you do it and this is how they're going to be phased in and if i can add to that i mean i think there is a lot of also conversation about you know if we transition the if is not the word to be used. Mm-hmm. It's how we transition. We can either, we, we're pretty much faced with two options right now. We can either have a very well-planned, orderly transition with substantial changes to the way we do uh, business, the way our economy functions, the way our financial system functions, or we continue driving the way we're driving right now. And then we have a very abrupt and a very disorderly transition. So the question is not whether we transition, it's the question of And how. very harmful for and billions it, for of people. For everybody, right? yeah. absolutely everybody. And it won't just be harmful for you know emerging markets and developing economies. It will be harmful for every single person on this planet. So finding ways to act every day and for individuals it's it's you know it's not only looking at your um, you know how you travel or you know how you get to work or how you eat but it's also where's your pension invested kind of you know talk to your pension fund provider of where what is that money doing uh, ask them for the impact that's another way of having a very real influence on how the world transitions just a final point there and Nina's kind of mentioned it there from a business perspective perspective when you talk about transition this isn't therefore about cost 
it's going to be slightly costly to make changes, but this is actually investment. This is investment that is going to give you returns because mm. that is the direction of travel. And this is investment in technologies that are going to save you energy, make life cheaper in the future. And that applies for individuals as much as it applies for businesses. So this is about investment in that future. So for the business leaders in the UK listening to our conversation, what would be your your key takeouts, the things that they should hold in their mind from the conversations at COP28 and then, well, what do I do about that now? Well, I think the first thing is to take this as a serious message that at a global level, we're on a we're on a journey, we've been on a journey, but that journey has only been even more committed to by this um, decision that we are going to be transitioning away from fossil fuels. And that means by 2050, so actually the window for that is not that long. Mm. You've got you know, uh, maybe 30, 30 years to be thinking about how does your business operate in a market where you are going to be told you're going to be re- reducing the amount of fossil fuels that you are relying on um, and what does that mean for my supply chains and all the rest of it. So it does have a real impact on, you know, thinking about your future business. The flip of that is also how do you use statements being made by national governments at COP to state, well, this is what I need as a policy to be able to make those investments in the UK or in Europe or or anywhere else in the world. What are the policies that I need to be stating to government that, 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 that will see this delivered? And using those commitments that governments have now made essentially to hold them to account. And the business will have an important role to play in holding Um, uh, governments to account on delivery um, of these commitments. So if there is a key policy that you need to see to be able to make those investments, make those changes, then, you know, be speaking with your policy advisors, be speaking with your policy teams, be speaking with your trade associations, um, which which clearly I represent. uh, But they're the ones uh, that are are, going to be talking with government and using these commitments that we've seen in the last 48 hours to say to government, hello, this is what this really means in practice and see those policies delivered. Nina? So if you look at your operations, at your investments today, look at how climate resilient they are, specifically look at how climate resilient your operations are. But also, if you're making investments today, and while making those investments, you're not looking into the future, what you're investing in is effectively stranded assets. So assets that are not going to be able to be used. Therefore, think through the immediate perspective of where the opportunities in this new market lie, where you can go, where you can lead, think through the threats and the risks that are already built in within our system and take steps to start addressing that. Irrespective of you know, blips up or blips down on the politics of this or on the policy of this, the science on this is absolutely clear. So from that perspective, If we are forward-looking business leaders and forward-looking finance leaders, our job today is to continue driving this transition. And for those leaders who are saying, well, if if I'm an early adopter, I mean, it's not very early adopting. I mean, we're running out of time. But if, if if I go for this, if I jump with both feet, I might get burned because of the blips up and down, because of the unstable policy landscape that we're we're currently in maybe i'll just hang back let other people get their feet burned work out the you know the the pitfalls and the dead ends and then i'll and then i'll 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 jump on the bandwagon at the last minute what do you say to those folk 
So I've spent half my career in in actual pure play finance in the City of London, and we had a saying then is that it's much easier to avoid the losers in a winning industry than to pick the winners in a losing industry. So what you want to do is you want to chart your course forward and do as much as you can and as quickly as you can because the world is changing. Fundamentally, we have different technologies that are already in play. We have fundamentally different cost structures that are already in play. So we are going to be living in a very different world two, three, four, five, ten years down the line. Yeah, and I'll add to that. And as you alluded to, um, in in the question, in many cases, in many technologies and what businesses can do, it's no longer an early mover. There are clear winners out there. Um, you know, the demand for solar panels now in the UK, the pipeline for solar projects, even on rooftops and on factories and on businesses, is very substantial. The economics of it make a huge amount of sense, especially with the energy price now so high. It's no longer looking at being a first mover it just makes economic sense and mm. just you know just get on and do it so in many cases this is now a fairly easy economic decision to be made of course that's not the case for every solution out there um, and, uh, and and the markets will continue to evolve um, but we will see those markets um, evolve as um, as as Nina has said and it is clear the direction of travel um, so you know understanding where those future winning technologies will be you just need to be looking at them and, and remaining focused on the market and as we've pointed out, the the global stock take, the kind of the big, the big shiny document has has been uh, signed off. But the conversations and negotiations are ongoing. And then, of course, all the delegates at COP28 go back to their home nations, and that's where the real work begins. And then the next COP will be in 2024 in probably Azerbaijan. That brings us to another point that COP is always an iterative process. It's always a developing discussion and the wordings and the agreements that we get will evolve and change over time. But as we've seen in the last few COPs, they are getting stricter and stricter um, and tighter and tighter. And, and we will see the uh, um, the kind of commitments that we want to be seeing. So important to recognise COP for what it is, which is an ongoing discussion of nations coming together. Many thanks to both my guests, Dr Nina Seeger and Mark Sommerfeld. You've been listening to the ITN Business Extra podcast on COP28 Reflections. I'm Marianne O'Hotter. For more information, please do check out the ITN Business Hub, business.itn.co.uk. Bye for now. Thank you.